Welcome to Episode 6 of the Princeton Podcast with Mayor Mark Frieda. In this episode, Mark invited Jim Waltman, Executive Director of the Watershed Institute, to discuss, among many topics, the impact of stormwater runoff in the greater Princeton area. They discussed Jim's background from his youth here in Princeton to his early career experiences as a researcher in the Galapagos Islands and later in Venezuela to his political experiences representing the National Audubon Society in Washington, D.C. Jim also discussed his current role as the executive director of the Watershed Institute, its mission and research activities, its 1,000-acre watershed reserve, and the educational exhibits and conferences at the Watershed Center. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, Jim Waltman, for Episode 6 of the Princeton Podcast. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Sure. It's great to be with you, Mark. Thank you. You know, so I think, first off, why don't you just tell us, what do you do? Yeah. So I'm the executive director of the Watershed Institute. We're a nonprofit water conservation, land conservation-focused organization. Um, And we've been working for a little over 70 years in this area to keep our water clean, safe, and healthy. Yeah, which is which is great. So let me ask you some other questions. We'll come back to the watershed in a little bit. But uh, Jim, did you grow up in Princeton? I did. Uh, my parents moved me and my three sisters to Princeton in the late '60s. So I I grew up in Princeton, and uh, I'm proud to have graduated from Johnson Park Elementary School, the middle school here in town, and Princeton High School. Yeah. So it, and uh, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Um, as uh, as a lot of people view, and really had a had a chance to get out and uh, experience some of Princeton's dreams and um, some wild places before they were parks. <laughs> not always legally, I guess. Back yeah. as a, as a youngster growing up here. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's also, and, and we'll tie this in a little bit later. But but I always think for someone in your position and all the things that the watershed tries to do for you to have that kind of history and knowledge of the area is 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 pretty important. Um, but before we get to all that, and so then after high school, college, what degree? Yeah, I, I, I didn't go far. I went to Princeton University. Um, I was a, a graduated in biology. I started college thinking I wanted to be a doctor, a, a medical doctor, and instead fell in love with ecology and evolution um, and the environment. And so that uh, kind of got me started along the path that I would uh, ultimately lead me to the watershed. That's pretty amazing. That's great. Um, so, all right. So you graduate college, and then wh- where'd you go first after that? Well, I got I got uh, really lucky. I I lucked into uh, about an eight month job as a research assistant down in the Galapagos Islands. So there were uh, a couple that had just arrived from the University of Michigan, Peter and Rosemary Grant. Um, they were new faculty at Princeton. Didn't have grad students yet. Didn't have research assistants yet. So. Um, I went down to the Galapagos in, uh, I guess, uh, early 1987, and so was studying the Darwin's finches and Galapagos mockingbirds down there. And so that was my re- real, you know, first experience in an incredibly wild and beautiful place. And uh, what a impact that's that had on my life, you know, seeing all these incredible animals in a setting where they weren't used to people. So there were, you know, a lot of um, Close encounter, shall we say? Right. What an amazing experience! So, so you were there for eight months. I was there for for eight months, living in a tent on a rock. <laughs> you know, it was a it was a island formed by a volcano, 
Um, there were no roads, no buildings, no nothing. Um, but we would have uh, visitors on cruise ships about once a week or so, once every couple of weeks. And um, they would uh, let us come out to the boat and tell our little stories of what we were doing, what we were studying, and we'd get a free meal out of it. And eventually we figured out how to get uh, mail sent to us that way. So it, it worked out pretty nicely. But it was a real wilderness experience. And, uh, you know, I was a pretty young guy. I was 22 years old or whatever. So it was pretty scary at first, but it was uh, an experience that I carry with me still to this day. Just the memories were that strong and, and wonderful. That's amazing. That, 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 what a great story. I don't know how many people could have an experience to, to top that yeah. one. Um, so you come back from the- I, I came back. I went to uh, graduate school. Uh, I, went, I went to what was then called the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Hmm. It's now called the Yale School in the Environment. Um, but I studied uh, policy and science there. It was a great program. I got to take some courses in the law school and the school of management and uh, met a incredible scientist, a guy named Steve Beisinger, who um, asked if I wanted to do some research with him. So uh, on top of my Galapagos experience, I, I uh, did some research in Venezuela in an area called the Llanos. It's a little bit like our Everglades, but more forested, very wet area, um, and study these little parrots, which are actually called parrotlets, green-rumped parrotlets. They're so small. So um, did that for about a, a year. I was back and forth uh, there studying the parrots. And again, I thought I was on my way to being a field biologist and an academic scientist. And um, that didn't quite work out the way I, I thought it would, but um, my life uh, took a little bit of a turn. Um, I ended up, uh, I thought I needed to take a little break between getting a master's degree and a PhD. So I went down to Washington, D.C. I did a six-month internship with a nonprofit called the National Wildlife Federation and ended up getting bitten by the political bug. I fell in love with politics and policy, um, something, frankly, I never took any coursework in in college. Um, but I ended up staying in Washington for 15 years. I was a uh, a Capitol Hill lobbyist for the National Audubon Society and the, and the Wilderness Society. So very different side of things. I was wearing a suit, not wearing, uh, you know, jeans and, and field gear, um, but loved it. Loved, loved every minute of it. What a, what a transition. What a, yeah, I, I guess you don't know where the road takes you, but you just follow you, the road. You just follow the road sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, I loved the, the energy of being in Washington Politics were very different. You know, I went down there in uh, in the early 90s, I guess 1990, when um, things were a lot more bipartisan. You know, I enjoyed the challenge of getting Republicans to vote with us, and quite a few did back in the day. Um, but it was a it was a great job with uh, with both of those places. They also had me traveling quite a bit, um, to give talks and so forth. So I traveled to 45 different states. Um, during those two jobs, including Alaska and Hawaii. So I got to some really great states. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was great until it was less great. And then it wasn't great. And I kind of got tired of the, the politics in Washington, kind of in the early to mid-2000s. Things started getting uh, quite different than, than they had been. Much more partisan, uh, much more kind of nasty and... Uh, not as 
not as interesting, frankly. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate when we look at the. I guess someday historians will look at the political history of our country and and kind of look at those times and how we went from most people thinking, okay, I'm a different party, but what's best for the country, as opposed to let me put my but I, I, what I personally perceive as, let me put my party before my country. So that does make it hard for to get things done. Exactly. So, you know, we were, uh, I, I spent uh, time working on uh, Alaska public land issues, like oil drilling and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, for example. And um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, we had like 50 Republicans voting our way. We lost some Democrats and we had eight Republican senators vote to protect the Arctic refuge, and we lost a few Democrats. It's just not that way anymore. It's completely partisan on on most environmental issues. Yeah, which is uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so okay. So at some point, you're tired of Washington D.C., and then <laughs> yeah. how, how do you uh, how did you make your great escape? Yeah. So I I, I got a, a phone call. It was interesting. I it was a very cold day, a little bit like this, and about this time of year. Um, this was uh, the end of 2004, and I got a call from my sister who was living in, in uh, Hopewell Township and a uh, next-door neighbor of one of the board members of the then we were called the Stony Brook Millstone Watershed Association. Yep. And I had just come out of a meeting with a chief of staff of a very conservative Republican who we thought we were going to get on, on this environmental issue because he was good friends with John McCain. And it ended up being brutal. This guy was accusing us of just using issues to raise money and we didn't really, you know, and so... I was kind of at the bottom. It was cold. It was blustery. It was starting to hail. And I get this call from my kid sister saying, hey, do you know anybody that'd be interested in running this group called the Stony Brook something? I'm not sure what it's called. Um, I went back to the office. I looked it up. A little embarrassed to say I grew up in Princeton. I didn't know about the Stony right. Brook Millstone Watershed Association. Uh, and um, thought, boy, this looks like a really interesting group. And um, the more I explored, it looked more and more interesting. So I threw my hat in the ring and uh, ended up landing the job and, and came back to the area in the spring of 2005. Amazing journey. So um, we're going to get into the watershed a little more in just a second, but, but, but uh, in reading up on, on you, <laughs> as I probed your past, <laughs> um, I think you're involved with the State Agriculture Development Committee. So yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Another group that I'm sure most yeah. people have no idea even exists. What is that? So it's got kind of a funny name because it sounds like, you know, it's called the State Agriculture Development Committee. Um, the point of the, of it, so it's a board, it's a state board. Um, I was uh, nominated by Governor Corzine. So I've been on this thing for a while and then had to be confirmed by the state Senate. Um, which they did back in 2008, I, th I think. I'm trying to remember, 08 or 09. So the board has oversight of the Farmland Preservation Program. So the name is a little odd because we're trying to keep farmland from being developed. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's the only role I've had kind of working for the government. And it's it's been uh, interesting and nourishing and frustrating for other reasons. But the state of New Jersey has a terrific farmland preservation program. Um, of course, farmland has disappeared and continues to really dramatically, but um, but a lot of funds have gone into that. The the state um, residents, the state voters have supported this overwhelmingly, and so it's been fun to serve on that board. Um, we're facing tough questions now, like um, is it okay to put 
solar panels on a farm? And if so, how much? And, you know, because we've got now competing concerns of climate change and needing to um, create more renewable, clean energy, but we want to preserve the farms at the same time. So, um, and that's kind of generally true. A lot of the environmental issues that um, were a little simpler, you know, toxics, are they good or bad? You know, um, do we want to preserve land or not? Now there's a added dimension to some of them um, when we have to be concerned with the climate and things like invasive species that um, weren't as big a problem, you know, a few decades ago. It's a real balancing act trying to it is. It yeah, is. Set priorities and so let's jump just jumping back to the watershed. Um, so you're executive director. Yeah. So what do you what do, what you, do I do? What, do you, what is it you do? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> um, so what what I do is uh, I, I set the, the big picture goals and direction of the organization and then manage a staff. We have about three dozen staff, terrific folks. Um, they're scientists, educators, advocates, land stewards, and other professionals. Um, and then I work with a board of directors and raise the money to keep to keep the place going. But so the the work we do includes um, monitoring streams for water pollution, trying to get an understanding on you know what are the what are the trends in the environment um, from the kind of natural side and the water side. Um, we do environmental advocacy, um, trying to strengthen policies to uh, better protect land and water. Um, and we do work mostly at the very, very local level, like in the municipality here in Princeton, or at the state level, working with the legislature and the, the governor's administration, particularly the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, and time to time, we work at the federal level, too, working programs run by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and so forth. Um, and then we do a, a very robust environmental education program. So we're serving 10,000 or more kids and adults a year. So so I'm, I try to not get too deep into the details and, and let the terrific professionals we have uh, do their thing. Um, but the, the big goal of mine is to make sure these parts are integrated um, and make sure that everybody on our staff, um, whether they're a scientist or an, you know an environmental attorney, um, realizes that they're all educators, and and we exist to try to um, increase the awareness and understanding of in, of environmental issues, um, changing behaviors, changing mindsets, and sometimes changing laws. But um, you know it's a it's a job to engage people and try to. Uh, uh, improve understanding and then and help people become um, better environmentalists. Yeah. So it's, it seems to me having like you've been in the area for a long time um, that the watershed's mission or scope has really expanded a lot from what it used to be. It, it has um, in a, in a couple of ways. Um, one geographically. So um, we were founded um, as I mentioned, as the Stony Brook Millstone Watershed Association. 13 syllables and a hyphen. So, and most of the people that I would uh, meet and introduce myself, you know, th th would have trouble remembering that name. Um, but the name was very intentional um, because it described an organization that was focused on a region, and that region was the Stony Brook Millstone Watershed. 
So a watershed is pretty, you know, imagine it's a it's an area of land that drains into a water body like a river or a lake. So think of a bowl or a funnel, that's a watershed, and it's all going to drain down to the bottom of the hole. Um, over time, our work has expanded. We still have this focus in this local region. We work in about 30 towns in the, in the kind of central Jersey area. Um, but we also do a lot of work across the state and a little bit outside the state. Um, so we have for folks that work on the statewide policy in Trenton. Um, we have a uh, contract with the state DEP where we run a statewide water monitoring program. So we're coordinating people from all over the state to do that. So we're a little bit of a hybrid mark. You know, we still have the super local focus, um, but our work extends well beyond it now, including um, some relatively work, new work we're doing in the city of Trenton. It's amazing. So that's great. But I mean, you're, I think most organizations do hope that they can figure out what it is they need to do. And as times change, sometimes the mission and scope needs to adjust and change. Yeah. Also. And, you know, we're much more focused on climate change, global warming than we used to be. Um, you know, we fought for seven years with others against the proposed Penn East pipeline through the area. You know, that was an understanding that um, that pipeline would have harmed a lot of streams and our water supplies, um, but it was also kind of related to the climate. So indirectly, the climate's the biggest threat we have to our water. So we, we have to acknowledge that and, and fight that where we can as well. Yeah. So let, let, me, let me just throw a, a, a little plug in here. You mentioned this before, but the watershed is a nonprofit, right? We are. Okay. Yep. Yep. So if I send you a check, that's... Tax deductible. That's tax deductible. All right. That's, Mark, that's, thanks thanks that, for bringing that up. That's okay. I just thought I'd mention that yeah. just in case. I'm sure there are a lot of people asking that in their mind just now. Um, and if I could be so bold, um, you could go on our website at this very minute, <laughs> thewatershed.org, and and make a donation. Um, and I think uh, residents of uh, Princeton, your mayor just kind of suggested that you do that. So. <laughs> that may get edited out of this podcast. We'll see. We'll see. But feel free. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it's there's so many valuable and worthwhile nonprofits in this area. But it's always whenever we have a chance to draw attention to any of them, you know, I think it's it's worthwhile doing. Uh, but let's jump to to stormwater management, right? Because I think stormwater management and the watershed go hand in hand. And I mean, what Climate change, everything, but I mean, stormwater management, after some of the storms we've just been through recently, what a uh, hot topic right uh, now. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, we call it polluted stormwater runoff, and it, it is the biggest impact of climate change, certainly in this area and, and, and much of this country and much of the world. Um, and two things are going on at the same time that makes this a bigger and bigger problem. Um, number one is climate change. So we're seeing bigger and bigger storms. And the scientists are, you know, they've, they uh, have witnessed this going back, looking at the data. The big storms are getting bigger. Um, and they're projecting forward, we're only going to have more and more of these big, big storms. So, you know, the, the, the Ida um, this summer, unbelievable. So a lot of places in the state got more than three inches in one hour, more than 10 inches in 24 hours. You know, that used to be kind of unheard of, un almost unimaginable. Um, the second thing that, that has happened over time, um, as, as we've developed the state, we add 
uh, what people refer to as impervious surfaces. So these are hard surfaces, parking lots, rooftops that don't allow water to percolate through them. So there's less room for the water to go and more water. So it's, it's you know, as they say, it's not rocket science. Um, it's creating more flooding. Um, the state of New Jersey in 2004 adopted some, at the time, considered very aggressive stormwater rules. Um, and in New Jersey, of course, each town has to enforce the state um, regulations. Um, but now we're looking back and we're saying, well, you know, that was, those were a good set of rules um, as far as they went, but we really need to do more. So in, in this state, when you build something new, you know, if somebody's going to tear down a forest and put in a shopping center, you have to address the stormwater that runs off from the shopping center. And the regulators, be they with the state or the, or the town, they have to compare what would have happened when the forest was there versus what happens when the, the shopping center is built, right? Um, the problem is that much of our state and, and older towns like Princeton, most of the development happened a long time ago, right? So strong stormwater rules that mitigate new stormwater from new developments, well, that helps make sure the problem doesn't get any worse, but you never catch up. Um, and so what we've been advocating, and we've been in the conversation with the town uh, for a few years now, is that when a developed area is redeveloped, in other words, you're going to tear one building down and build something different, um, that's an important opportunity to add some stormwater mitigation, right? Some way of taking the water that would otherwise run off and cause flooding downstream and either hold on to it for a while before releasing it um, or try to infiltrate it, try to help it percolate down into the ground, right? So if we can do that, then every time a piece of land is redeveloped, then we can start incrementally chipping away at the problem of, of this uh, polluted stormwater runoff. Which, which will, will take a long time. And I think people need to understand it's a new world. So let me throw a couple of things at you. Correct me if I'm wrong. So as you said, storms will occur more frequently and they'll be bigger. Yeah. So you could live in an area that never flooded and now it's going to start to flood. That's right. And, and, it's, and it's really... Um, uh, it's pretty grim, frankly. When you look forward, uh, you, as you said, there are towns that are not towns, but um, homes, businesses that that have never flooded in the past, and now because the precipitation is higher, the storms are bigger. Um, maybe the area around them is more developed; they're more flood prone. And you know, unfortunately, we have to um, find the areas that flood the most. And we're going to have to spend some money helping people get to safer ground. Um, it's just, uh, it's just kind of the the reality. Um, you know, there's uh, there's towns in the state that have seen this over and over again. There's others that are just starting to. Um, I spent a day um, in the town of Manville, not far from here, with the mayor, and he was walking me around, just showing me home after home after home that now are. You know, you can't occupy them anymore. And yet, you know, people living in their cars until they figure out something they can do. And um, 
it's, it's, you know, it's not anything anybody did wrong knowingly, right? We made some mistakes before we knew they were mistakes by building in places that were prone to flooding or would become prone to flooding. Um, and by not managing the stormwater from developments um, for a long, long time. Um, but now we know better and we need to kind of um, try to take some, uh, some new corrective actions. And I, and I think there's you know, a lot of hope that we can do that. Right. And I, and I think if people are purchasing a property, they need to pay attention to, yeah, maybe on a flood map, this shows us a hundred year floodplain. Well, that's probably not a hundred year floodplain anymore, right? I mean, at some point, all that stuff's going to have to be adjusted because more storms, larger storms, what used to happen every hundred years, maybe it's happening every 20. What used to happen every 20s, maybe, you know, it's that's domino ab- effect. Ab- absolutely. And, and, you know, I know that, um, that FEMA has been working on revising their maps for quite a while and, and the state DEP likewise. And, you know, this isn't some, some people in, uh, who live in New Jersey think this is just a sea level rise issue. You know, if you're living on the coast, you're in trouble. This is, this is just a, an issue for all of us. So, you know, I live in, um, Copewell Borough and fortunately for us, we're on a little bit of a hill there, but the, the lower spots in Hopewell Borough, small town, fewer than 2000 residents just got hammered yeah. um, in Henry and then Ida again. And I'm afraid we're going to see that more and more um, into the future. Right. And, and towns need to take a regional approach on this because it's not like the water knows, well, I fell in Princeton, I'll stay in Princeton, or I fell in Hopewell, I'll stay in Hopewell, right? So there's this whole downstream effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all live in a watershed, which means we're all suffering the consequences of the folks upstream from us. Um, and we're doing something unknowingly, perhaps that's impacting the folks that that live downstream from us. So it really does require uh, regional effort, um, regional conversations and planning. Yeah. So let me just jump, uh, you know, thanks so much for spending that time with us on stormwater because it is critical and everybody needs to be aware of it. Well, and let me just say, I I, um, don't want to miss this. Princeton's taken some really bold steps. And so the town's to be commended. You know, the state regulations say you need to start mitigating stormwater if you add about 11,000 square feet of new impervious surface, um, that's a big development. That's a lot. You know, so you miss a lot. And to your credit, Princeton said, well, boy, if you add, I think it's 400 square feet of impervious cover, um, you got to do something to mitigate the stormwater. So that, you know, that's a tough program. It's a bold program. Um, and uh, it's really important. Yeah. Well, part, I know really part of what we're hoping to change too is that what people would come in, there's a threshold now. And so they'd come in just under the threshold. Then they'd come in with a second project that takes them over the threshold and say, hey, it's two separate projects. So part of what we're changing is we're going to look at them both because exactly. you know, you, exactly. this, the, yeah. the impact on everybody around you is too severe for us to play this game with. Exactly. So, you know, that we've, that the environment suffers from um, what are called externalities, you know, things that cost society, they cost other people something, but we don't quantify it, right? So um, we, we're not very good at assessing the impact that we have on other people, you know, whether we, you know, build something and it impacts the, the, the folks downstream or um, we adopt a, a, a policy. And uh, so it's, it's really important to understand those things and then plan for it. Yeah. 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 So let me jump to just a little bit different part yeah. of what you mentioned before was education. And, um, you know, I've been out at, out at the, the Watershed Institute property a, a number of times. Uh, I was out there recently for your fundraiser. Thank Very you. well yes, done. Amazing you. job by your staff. Incredible. 
but it's a very interesting property. And so for those that have not visited it yet, but will go there sometime in the near future, since they should, can you just kind of, I mean, you have trails, you have boardwalks, you have, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that's, um, you know, it's a joy. I, when I go to work every morning, you know, I pinch myself because it's a, it's a beautiful place. Um, our home is almost a thousand acres now. It's an area called the Watershed Reserve. And it's got a real mix of habitats from mature woods to meadows, wetlands, streams that go through there. Um, we have this, the Stony Brook comes right through the property. Um, more than 10 miles of hiking trails. And we're, uh, we're building a boardwalk, which is fully ADA compatible. So um, to make the, the grounds more accessible, we've built about a thousand feet. And we're working on about a half mile trail. Um, and then within the reserve, we have this beautiful um, building that's now about half a dozen years old, the Watershed Center. Um, it's a lead platinum facility, which means it's very, you know, green. It's got a lot of uh, energy conservation and water conservation and smart water management strategies developed into it. Um, the building has a bunch of exhibits about nature and renewable energy and so forth, and then some live animal exhibits. So, Snakes and turtles and fish and frogs uh, are all there to to teach kids, and then we have um, you know so the, the the watershed institute facilities open to the public dawn to dusk seven days a week um, for for casual visitors, and then we have uh, programs for folks, programs for schools, um, programs for families, programs for adults, and you can check all that out on our website also at thewatershed.org. Right. And you guys, you just had a, your, a conference. I know I, I attended a couple sessions virtually. I wasn't able to, to go out and, and be there in person, but, you know, number of elected officials, staff from all kinds of municipalities and all sorts of impressive guests and speakers. And Yeah. So we, we do this uh, annual conference. It's the New Jersey Watershed Conference. It's, it's mostly about watershed science and policy. Um, you know, we had to go virtual last year and we tried the hybrid this year. It worked pretty well. We had, uh, I think we had about 150 people virtual and maybe 50 in person. But uh, so we're, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to do that, that hybrid thing. But um, yeah, some great speakers, a lot of information on um, stormwater management and open space management and, you know, the science and policy of all that. Yeah. It's, it's, it is to me, it's amazing all that the Watershed Institute accomplishes and uh, you and your staff are to be complimented. And maybe we could just tell people actually where you're located. That could be, yeah. that will help them find it because they're going to go visit it soon. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. So, um, so we're located in Hopewell Township near Pennington, right? I got to give my props to both our, both our hometowns there. Um, so, and we're kind of midway between Route 31 to our west, and uh, what's called Pennington Rocky Hill Road to our east. Pennington Rocky Hill Road kind of swerves around and becomes Cherry Valley Road. So um, you can find us on on the Google map very easily. Just type in the Watershed Institute, and uh, you'll find different ways to get to get there. But very close by, you know, we're um, less than ten miles from downtown Princeton. It'll take you about fifteen minutes to get out. Yeah, nice ride. And for those people that go and buy uh, 
corn and vegetables and fruit at Kerr's farm stand. You're just down the road from there. So there's a, a, a landmark that exactly. I think many very, people are familiar very, with. Very close by. And, and if you know that the old uh, Bristol Myers Squibb had their Hopewell campus right across the street from us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Jim, thank you very much for being with us today. This has uh, been very informative. Well, thanks for having me on. And, and Mark, thanks for your leadership of Princeton. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the sixth episode of the Princeton Podcast, produced as a community service by HG Media, providing audio, video, and website design services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends and be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.